The opening week of the UN General Assembly shows that we are indeed in a new era of global politics. Today, we're going to talk about what President Zelensky of Ukraine said. We'll talk about what Joe Biden said, unveiling a new strategy, a new global strategy designed to break up the forming alliances of global South countries. And we're going to talk about the Ukraine war. Spoiler alert, it's about to escalate. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Walter Smolarik once again. Walter is the editor of Liberation News. You can see his writings and those of the website at liberationnews.org. Walter Smolarik, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining. Walter, we have some video clips from President Zelensky and President Biden's speech at the UN General Assembly. I think they're noteworthy. Of course, Zelensky is pitching war, calling for an escalating war, talking about the need to expand rather than reduce nuclear weapons. He's about to go to Washington and meet with not only President Biden, but leaders of both parties. This time, not before both houses of Congress, it'll be behind closed doors. But when you look at what President Biden said, it was the unveiling of a new strategy. Again, I think the United States is alarmed about what's happening with BRICS countries and the emergence of perhaps a new movement of the non-aligned. Clearly, the United States is not going to accept that. Let's start, Walter, by playing a clip. This is Joe Biden in his presentation. We have several clips, but let's start with this one. Then I want to get your comments. Like every nation in the world, the United States wants this war to end. No nation wants this war to end more than Ukraine. And we strongly support Ukraine in its efforts to bring about a diplomatic resolution that delivers just and lasting peace. But Russia alone, Russia alone bears responsibility for this war. Russia alone has the power to end this war immediately. And it's Russia alone that stands in the way of peace because the Russia's price for peace is Ukraine's capitulation. If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. That's why the United States, together with our allies and partners around the world, will continue to stand with the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their sovereignty and territorial integrity and their freedom. It's not only investment in Ukraine's future, but in the future, every country that seeks a world governed by basic rules that apply equally to all nations and uphold the rights of every nation, no matter how big or small, sovereignty, territorial integrity, they are the fixed foundations of this noble body. And universal human rights is this North Star 
We cannot sacrifice either. Well, in one sense, it was a successful speech, Walter, because Joe Biden didn't fall down. He didn't, you know, enunciate very well, but he did say most of the words that somebody had written for him. So in that sense, a big success story for Joe Biden. Of course, it's a pretty low bar when it comes to Joe. But there are some things there in that speech, well, many things actually, that just jump out at one because of their, one, their naked hypocrisy, but also the, the double speak in the innuendo and insinuation. Anyway, I want to get your take. Yeah, I mean, there was Joe Biden doing his best to make words. And essentially what he was saying is that this war is 100% on Russia's hands and we are just nobly coming to the defense of poor Ukraine, who is the victim of aggression. But this war was completely designed by the NATO powers. The circumstances that led to this war that made this war inevitable were of the United States' making. And everything that the U.S. government has done, everything that the Pentagon has done since the war broke out has actually been aimed at prolonging the war and making it drag on and on and on endlessly. And the reason why the United States wants to do this, the reason why the Biden administration wants to make the war drag on is because of what Lloyd Austin said. They want to weaken Russia. They calculate that the longer the war goes on, the more political and economic turmoil that creates for the Russian government. And it gives them a greater opportunity to diplomatically isolate Russia. They're not succeeding to nearly the extent that they would like to on those counts, but they do want the war to go forward because they see this as a strategic opening to achieve these long running demands, which also include things like making sure that their NATO allies in Europe stick very closely to the Pentagon and State Department line. I mean, the US government likes this war. And the fact that tens of thousands of Ukrainians and tens of thousands of Russians are dying, and the fact that the life of every person on this planet is imperiled by the fact that these two nuclear-armed powers are engaged in a proxy war with each other, or the U.S. is engaged in a proxy war against Russia, that's of no consequence whatsoever to the people who manage the U.S. empire. The fact that Biden can go in front of the U.N. General Assembly and say, we want peace with a straight face, I mean, that's really incredible. It's an incredible exercise in hypocrisy. Yeah, no nation wants this war to end more than Ukraine. Well, from the point of view of the Ukrainian people, that's probably true. But as you said, Walter, his opening sentences, like every nation in the world, the United States wants this war to end. Sending more weapons to Ukraine, and the U.S. is now going to send hundreds of millions, billions, really, of more weapons, including escalatory weapons, and we're going to talk about what those might be, again, after they already sent cluster bombs, millions of cluster bombs, or at least hundreds of thousands of cluster bombs, that weapon foundationally is a crime against humanity because it's an indiscriminate weapon. But there are other elements of this talk that just really jump out at you. Nations, no matter how big or small, their sovereignty and territorial integrity must be respected. These are the fixed foundations of this noble body, meaning the UN. And I'm thinking like the US invaded Panama in 1989. It invaded Iraq in 2001. It bombed Yugoslavia and threatened a ground invasion in 1999. That's how it broke up Yugoslavia. Then a year and a half later, the US invaded Afghanistan for 20 years. And according to Brown University's cost of war report, 250,000 Afghans died. The next year it invaded Iraq. 
and it still has U.S. troops in Iraq. You know, in 2011, it bombed the hell out of Libya and destroyed the Libyan government. It sent proxy forces into Syria, and U.S. troops are still in Syria. And then Biden gets up. All nations, no matter how big or small, their territorial integrity must be respected. Again, this is the, the doublespeak, the hypocrisy that the U.S. politicians, all of them, both parties, routinely employ. I want to go, though, Walter, I have two clips to start with from President Zelensky because he's talking about escalation of the war. He's not talking about the war ending. Again, the war can end by going to the negotiating table and talking about Russia's very legitimate security concerns, meaning it doesn't want advanced U.S conventional and nuclear missiles on its border, which is what will happen once Ukraine joins NATO. But anyway, here's Zelensky, the pitch man for the war, the salesman for the war. We must act united to defeat the aggressor and focus all our capabilities and energy on addressing these challenges. As nukes are restrained, likewise the aggressor must be restrained and all his tools and methods of war. Each war now can become final, but it takes our unity to make sure that aggression will not break in again. All right, uh, Walter, just a couple of things there. We must act united to defeat the aggressor and focus all of our capabilities and energy on addressing those challenges. So not about peace. He's looking to defeat Russia. Okay. Here's another one. Each war can now become final. This means like if they ultimately can defeat Russia, this is a, a new era of peace, very much like the way the politicians were selling World War One. And again, that the enemy, the aggressor, meaning Russia in this case, must be restrained and all his tools and methods of war restrained. Of course, that would be nuclear weapons. Anyway, when you really parse the words, a very bellicose address by the leader of a country that is not looking for peace, it's looking to win this war. Right, absolutely. That's what Zelensky wants as well. Zelensky wants the war to go on and on, that he receives you know, many, many tens of billions of additional dollars in military and economic assistance, and that that eventually in some fantasy will lead to the defeat of Russia on the battlefield. That's, you know, a fanciful idea. I mean, there's certainly no indications that the Ukrainians are about to win this great breakthrough that, you know, Zelensky is promising, that the corporate media is promising. But really what this shows is the is the stakes of this war. I mean, this is about the United States, the, you know, second largest nuclear armed power in the world, the one with, you know, enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet and wipe out all life on Earth many times over, uh, pursuing a conflict with the other largest nuclear armed power. And, and Zelensky wants the world to go further and further and further down that road. It's unbelievably dangerous. And the reality is actually just the opposite. I mean, Zelensky is saying like, okay, well, if Russia can get away with it, then they're going to be emboldened to wage other wars of aggression. Well, what's really going to happen is if the United States gets away with this, if they're able to turn the war in Ukraine into a domestic crisis for Russia, I mean, that's going to be hugely emboldening for the Pentagon. I mean, they are the ones who are actually the source of war and instability and conflict in the world. And so Ukraine to them, and, you know, I mean, there are actually articles written that essentially state this outright. You know, Ukraine is essentially 
a testing ground for the real battle, which is going to be with China over Taiwan. So I think that this really does have huge cascading consequences for the whole shape of the world. And if Zelensky gets his way, if Biden gets his way, that world is going to be much, much more dangerous and unstable. One of the things that's clear from Zelensky's visit, and again, he'll be talking with both party leaderships in Congress and with Biden again in Washington tomorrow, is he wants a major escalation. Zelensky is now demanding MGM-140 Army Tactical Missile Systems. That's the A-T-A-C-M-S. This is something that up until now, the U.S. has said, no, we're not sending these weapons to Ukraine because they're going to be a big escalation. And if there's a big escalation, that means that Russia will also escalate. Russia's not going to lose this war. Russia's determined not to lose the war, and Russia has lots of weapons, including advanced conventional and nuclear technologies. It's not going to do it. But let's just talk about why the Biden administration so far, and the Pentagon has said, Lloyd Austin has said so far, no to the Ukrainians' demand for the ATACMS. But given the other you know, record of the past 18, 19, 20 months, Walter, every time the U.S. has said no to a weapon system that would indeed escalate the war, eventually the U.S. says, after initially saying no, 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 they say yes, 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 and they actually send these weapons. Let's start by talking about what this Army tactical missile system actually would allow the Ukrainian military to do. Right. I think it's clear what they would like to do is to strike inside of Russian territory more often. I mean, the ATACMS missile system, this new advanced missile system that Zelensky is demanding, has a much longer range than the missiles that they currently have. The HIMARS missile system people may have heard of, you know, that's something that was another one of these forbidden weapon systems. It's a taboo because it would just be too escalatory. It's too wild of a move. But then the United States eventually started shipping these HIMARS missiles. The attack MS missile system has a longer range, and they would be able to strike cities deep inside of Russia. They would be able to hit infrastructure targets deep inside of Russia, transportation, fuel depots. So this would be something that would greatly escalate the war because, of course, Russia would be forced to, as you were laying out, Brian, respond to that. You know, the Ukrainian government intelligence forces have already begun organizing these, you know, raids across the border into towns that are on the Russian side of the border across from Ukraine. There's been an increased use of drones, drones to strike Russian cities, including Moscow. And so if they get this new missile system, they're going to be doing that, but to a much greater extent on a far greater scale. And one that would put, this is the calculation, would put Russia in a position where they would need to respond with an escalation in kind. The war would deepen, the prospects for a negotiated settlement would become even more remote than they already are. And the cycle will just keep going and going and going on. You know, after they get this missile system, if and when they get this missile system, they'll come up with a new demand. They'll dream up something new. Maybe eventually they'll come back to the idea of a no-fly zone, which was something that was floated at the onset of the conflict. That would mean U.S. and other NATO powers shooting down Russian jets. I mean, is that the direction that we're headed? Possibly. I mean, certainly there's really no limit that we can observe so far as to how far the Pentagon will eventually go and the extent to which the Ukrainian government wants to push it. Walter, I was in 
Denver and Boulder, Colorado, and then San Luis Obispo in LA this this past week, basically talking about the war and the perspectives of the anti-war movement. And, you know, one of the points that I was making and one of the points that we've been making on this show is that while there are, according to the U.S. government's own surveys, maybe a half a million casualties already in the war in just 19 months. I mean, when you compare that to Vietnam, where the U.S. in a 10-year-long conflict lost 58,000 U.S. soldiers, and that provoked a massive anti-war movement in the United States. As we all know, during the Vietnam War, millions of people were saying, why? Why are we sending our sons and some of our daughters to fight thousands of miles away in Vietnam? Why? And it seemed like a war that had no chance of succeeding, a, a no light at the end of the tunnel. And so there was this mass anti-war movement. And the point that I was making in this tour is that the main complaint now from the Pentagon is that Ukrainians are getting sick and tired of dying in big numbers. They're, the euphemistic language that's being used by the government officials is that they fear that Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse, meaning averse to having their kids die in these large numbers. And I've been reading on this show some of the quotes from the mass media quoting anonymous Pentagon officials who say just that. Their main goal is to get the Ukrainians to accept the idea that they're going to have to keep fighting and dying. Now, if it was Americans who were fighting and dying, the other point I was making, because the U.S. government and the people of the United States especially are casualty averse, if the U.S. sends young Americans to go fight Russia in Ukraine, then the demonstrations that we've organized won't be in the many thousands, they'll be in the many hundreds of thousands. So the U.S. government and the U.S. politicians are casualty averse for Americans, but they don't want Ukrainians to become casualty averse because they need somebody to fight the Russians. They don't want a negotiated end to the war. They need somebody to fight the Russians. And if it's Ukrainians dying, no big deal. We can just shed crocodile tears, according to the basic narrative, shed crocodile tears for the poor Ukrainians, but it's fine as long as they do all the suffering. Meanwhile, the U.S. manufacturers of these weapons, including the Army Tactical Missile System, they're probably waiting in the wings too, Walter, to have the sort of inhibitions about using these escalatory weapons kind of evaporate. Before, the U.S. said they weren't going to send Ukraine M1 Abrams tanks, and then they sent them. They said they weren't going to send F-16 fighter jets, then they sent them. You mentioned the HIMARS system. They said they weren't going to do that. The precision rocket system, then they did that. And recently, they sent cluster bombs, which, as I mentioned earlier, are indiscriminate weapons. Most countries in the world won't possess cluster bombs because they consider them to be inherently a crime against humanity or a war crime, according to the rules of war you know, that have been outlined in the Geneva Convention. But here you have a proxy war, Ukrainians and Russians doing all the suffering, American arms manufacturers doing quite well. And each new step with a new escalatory weapon system, because they, the aggressor must be defeated rather than negotiated with, it leads down the same road, and it's a road of ruin for the people of Ukraine. 
Absolutely. The country has been completely torn apart by this war. Just to add one other thing to your your list of escalations, I mean, depleted uranium shells are now being used by the Western-backed Ukrainian forces. And these are horrific weapons, not just on the battlefield, but because of the consequences for the civilian population. I mean, the United States used depleted uranium in Iraq, especially to essentially level the city of Fallujah. And women in Fallujah are told by their doctors, do not have babies anymore because the fetal abnormality the fatalities, the mutations that babies have because of the extreme irradiation from these depleted uranium shells, that lasts for years and years and potentially even generations. That's of no concern to the Pentagon generals or to any of the people making the decisions to ship these terrible weapon systems, cluster bombs too, right? I mean, cluster munitions that don't explode or, you know, just sit there for children to find years later. So again, clearly human life not a factor here. And I think, you know, to your point about how people in the United States experience this policy, right? It's different than Iraq or Afghanistan or certainly Vietnam or Korea because the the number of U.S. casualties, well, in this case, are, are non-existent in Ukraine, right? Because it's a proxy force fighting. But we have to think about what the trade-offs are for the $100 billion, maybe now it's going to be $124 billion that was sent to underwrite this war. I mean, think about all the people who are dying from preventable diseases, who are dying because they can't go to a doctor or they didn't weren't able to go to a doctor in time to catch a preventable disease or have terrible health problems because they drink water that's contaminated with lead because of the sorry state of infrastructure in the United States. Or people might die because the bridge they're driving on collapses. I mean, these are also consequences, albeit indirect, of this type of warfare state, of this hyper-militarism that we live under, and that affects in profound ways everybody's lives one way or another. Well, another point that I've been making and we've been making on this show and you know it doesn't get much media attention. If you look if you look at the mainstream newspapers, well, do you think the main thing Americans care about is the Ukraine war and sending more weapons to Ukraine and what are Americans really thinking about Crimea or the Donbass, which is, you know, absolutely not true, but the the focus of the Biden administration is so on Ukraine, so on winning the war against Russia, weakening Russia, defeating Russia. You know, we've been making the point that the U.S. government is cutting off funding right now for child care, the child care funds that were expanded during COVID. And 70,000 child care centers, as we've said last week, are facing bankruptcy because they were dependent on those funds, the COVID additional relief funding. So that's 3.2 million kids are about to lose child care And that's another consequence. Like all of these decisions by the U.S. government to spend money endlessly for war, and it's not just the Ukraine war, it's all of the wars in aggregate. The bigger part of the federal discretionary spending, not the so-called entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, et cetera, but the discretionary spending, which is based on our taxes or people's taxes every year, More than 50% of it goes for the so-called defense budget. And of course, the Defense Department used to be rightly called the War Department. But then as the U.S. created a permanent war machine after World War II, they decided to name it the Defense Department. And so the budget became the defense budget. Because if you ask people to endlessly give over their tax dollars for war, it sounds like you're going to war. 
But if it's for defense, then it sounds like you're actually protecting people and especially the American people and the American homeland. So it's part of a, like a Madison Avenue sales job to call war spending defense spending. But, you know, this is another element of it. More than 50% of the discretionary budget is paying for war and also for the debt service for earlier wars. Because when the wars are being fought, like the war in Vietnam, you know, Johnson and Nixon didn't want to immediately raise taxes in order to pay for the war spending. So what they did is they borrowed the money with the idea that some future president under some other administration would have to pay the service charge, the interest on the debt for the money that was borrowed to finance the war in the first place. So you have immediate defense spending, so-called war spending. Then a bunch of that spending is hidden in other agencies like the Department of Energy, which has authority over nuclear weapons. And the U.S. has spent maybe $12 trillion on nuclear weapons since 1942. And then you have the debt service on interest to the banks who are also additionally profiting from war spending. It is a warfare state. Yeah, absolutely. And and add to that the Department of Veterans Affairs. I mean, of course, people who are sent as the human material for these conflicts should receive all the care that they need. But they wouldn't need all of this expensive medical care if the wars weren't created in the first place. And that's a giant annual expense as well. So the the fact that you know, this happens every year in Congress. This is funded every year in Congress with hardly any debate. Or like right now they are debating it, but it's over just these ridiculous sort of electoral gimmicks around, you know, quote unquote, woke politics. But the actual substance of it, like, are we going to spend a trillion dollars or so to kill people and threaten to kill people all around the world? That's never seriously discussed or debated inside of Congress. You know, certainly, certainly the Senate is going to have no problem signing the check, you know, however big it is for Ukraine war spending. You know, there are some demagogic far right politics politicians in the House who might posture as being opponents of, you know, this particular war and certainly not war in general, but they're all basically united. I mean, it's the old saying in U.S. politics, politics stops at the water's edge, meaning, you know, we can debate about domestic policy, but everyone who's responsible is on the same page that the United States should be a global empire capable of controlling everything that goes on in the whole planet. So I think that that speaks to the fact that the people of the United States who are not, actually not for these policies, right, they're certainly not for this policy in Ukraine of just endless, unlimited military spending, they need to stand up and make their voices, our voices, heard because the politicians in Washington have absolutely no interest in doing that and representing the views of their actual constituents. The people who they represent well, perhaps these are their actual constituents, are the executives at Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon and all of these corporations that profit both from the direct sale of weapons and all of the, you know, the aftermath too, right? I mean, the quote unquote reconstruction of Ukraine, corporations are already salivating over that. There are bankers who will underwrite all of that, who will, you know, sign off on loans and collect interest. The entire billionaire class benefits in one way or another from this warfare state they control the politicians. And so we have to we have to struggle. We have to fight. It's not enough just to ask nicely. No. And I'm glad you mentioned that going back to Biden's original speech, the clip that we played, he said it's not only an investment in Ukraine's future, you know, like even that language, it's the language of an investor class that sees Ukraine, this very big country 
what had been the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, rich agricultural area, to be like a source of investment. And you see the Zelensky government has basically been privatizing everything. I mean, they rounded up the political opposition. You know, many political figures and parties in Ukraine opposed the 2014 coup that the U.S. sponsored. They opposed the, the big impact that fascist forces in Ukraine have on the country. Those people have been locked up. They've been put in prison. The, the parties on the left, like the Communist Party of Ukraine, banned. But those forces existed in Ukraine. And, you know, now they've been basically shut down. And so you have Zelensky and the new government, which is functioning as a not only pro-NATO, but a neoliberal government privatizing everything. Ukraine is for sale. And the U.S. has invested since the collapse of the Soviet Union when Ukraine became, quote, independent for the first time, many, many, many billions of dollars even before the 2014 coup. Victoria Nuland had said at that time, and she was the cheerleader for the coup, you know, the U.S. had put $5 billion into Ukraine since 1991. She said it's for democracy, Walter, it's for a noble cause. It wasn't for a neo-colonial takeover of this vast, rich country, rich meaning rich in natural resources. It was for something great and noble like democracy. Anyway, I want to go back to Zelensky's visit and get your take on this tomorrow in Washington. Last year, he was in front of both houses of Congress. It was like the State of the Union address. I mean, Netanyahu's done that. Zelensky did it. Usually it's reserved for the president doing the State of the Union address. But this year it's behind closed doors. And I want to get your take on why you think it's a little bit, you know, smaller in terms of the hoopla production and what that indicates. Because I think it does indicate something about what's going on in the country. Certainly. I think the war has become much less popular. The proxy war in Ukraine has become much less popular. And this is typical of wars, right? I mean, when they break out, there is this sense of hysteria that's consciously generated by the corporate media, that's consciously generated by politicians. And it's designed to create this sense in society, this immense social pressure, essentially, to say that you are for the war, right? It makes you, you know, a bad person to not be for the war, because why wouldn't you be for coming to, you know, little Ukraine's assistance against this aggression? But over time, as the consequences of the war become more real, the human and the material consequences of the war, it's also typical for there to be a shift in public opinion in the opposite direction against the war. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing inside of the United States. Now, in Congress, the main representatives of that are these far-right figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and others, Matt Gates, for instance. And so that you know explains why it's not a joint session of Congress, because those far-right wingers have a lot of leverage over McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, so it's really mainly going to be senators this time. But I, I think that actually says more about the Democratic Party and liberals than it necessarily does about you know a so-called realignment inside of the Republican Party. Because the fact that there is this shift, this clear, unmistakable shift in public opinion away from the war, and that there are essentially no, you know, quote unquote, liberal doves 
who have decided to give voice to that, to, you know, even in their own narrow political career interests, take advantage of that. I mean, it says something about how ironclad the consensus within the Democratic Party is around what, you know, could be called neoconservative ideas, you know, an extreme hardline militarist approach to foreign and military policy that the Democratic Party is completely united around. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of differences over certain issues, but the fact that that expression of this growing opposition in society is actually only manifesting itself in a fringe of the Republican Party, I think should really give pause to anybody who thinks that the Democrats are a vehicle to make social progress or to raise progressive demands because it's completely 100% won over in lockstep to this new Cold War attitude against Russia that, as we've been talking about, is so profoundly dangerous. Yeah, and of course, there is the left, the answer coalition and other anti-war, anti-imperialist forces, the People's Forum and others who have been working together to build grassroots opposition to the war. And in the case of the answer coalition, tens of thousands of flyers and pamphlets were handed out when the US was promoting the idea of a no-fly zone which many people thought, well, no-fly zone means that Russian planes can't attack Ukrainians. That's good. It's peaceful. It protects Ukraine. Where a no-fly zone means the U.S. commits itself to shoot down Russian planes. And, of course, that would mean a global conflict. That would mean, actually, a new era, a new epic of the war, which would be a war between the United States and Russia. It would not be a proxy war. So... Answer Coalition's been in the streets organizing, in addition to that that speaking tour I was on, people have been in the streets demonstrating, creating anti-war contingents at environmental events. I mean, there's lots of activity going on, but you don't see it in the mainstream media. None of it's reflected in the capitalist media. The only anti-war attention that gets any attention in the media are these far-right, semi-fascist forces like the ones you mentioned, who are not really anti-war. They're just demigods. They'll say anything, but they at least know that their base doesn't really support the Ukraine war. And frankly, Walter, if, and I hope that the anti-war movement, the left progressive anti-imperialist anti-war movement succeeds in this, if we get out to all of the communities, not just people voting Democrats, but also the people who vote for Trump or vote Republican and tell them, or ask them, what would you rather do in the the spending of your tax dollars, your hard-earned tax dollars? 70,000 child care centers are about to be closed. And instead of funding them, the U.S. is sending hundreds of millions of billions of dollars to Ukraine. How would you prefer to use your money? Many people, many working class people who vote Democrat or Republican would support the anti-war movement. That's why the mainstream media keeps us, keeps the you know progressive anti-imperialist forces out of the mainstream media. That's why left third party candidates are excluded from the debates, because actually the message will resonate with huge parts of the country. But we don't hear from them. We don't hear from the left revolutionary or radical socialist anti-imperialist activists. They're barred from the mainstream media. And you don't really get to hear the voices of normal people, people who are not political, but who, you know, just instinctively don't like this policy. 
Absolutely. I mean, the reason why it's so dangerous for the powers that be, for the elites, the millionaires and billionaires, for that type of message to get out is because what essentially we're saying on on the left wing of the anti-war movement, the radical socialist-led anti-war movement, is that you should think of yourself as a worker first. You're a regular person living in the world. You're not an American with the same interests as the CEO of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon or bankers on Wall Street. You're you're actually a worker and your interests are pretty much the same as the workers in Russia and the workers in Ukraine and the workers in every country around the world in the sense that you want peace. You have no interest. I mean, no worker in the United States benefits from NATO expanding further and further into Eastern Europe, right? I mean, like, like nobody sits down at the dinner table and thinks about their problems and their family's problem. And we're like, oh, well, if only the Baltic states were incorporated into NATO, if only Georgia was incorporated into NATO, then all of my problems would go away. That's ridiculous. Does not exist. Those are the problems of the people who run the planet and want to maintain their stranglehold over the planet. So what we're saying to people is think about your own problems first. And those problems are pretty similar to problems in Ukraine and problems in Russia. And they can all be remedied if we have peace, not more war, not an escalation, and not a foreign policy, which is what the United States has adopted for decades, a foreign policy that forces countries into a position where they feel like they have no option but to wage war, that makes war inevitable. Yeah. We need a new system, Walter, as we say here on the Socialist Program. And a new system is possible, but we have to fight to get it. I want to go back to another part of what President Biden said. It's interesting because this is the unveiling of a new, I believe, a new strategy by U.S. imperialism towards the emergence of BRICS and the The countries that we now call the global south, some of which have very, very large economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the five members of BRICS who just had their summit before the BRICS was expanded with six more countries, their aggregate gross national product is greater than the gross national product of the G7, the former colonizers of the world and the biggest imperialists, United States, Canada, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. So BRICS is emerging, BRICS is expanding. Many, many countries want to join BRICS. And, you know, I think it's taken American imperialism, U.S. imperialism by surprise, because when the proxy war started in February 2022, I think the the calculations of the U.S. were something like this. We're going to refuse to acknowledge... Russia's demands or red lines to not incorporate Ukraine into NATO. And, you know, Jen Stoltenberg and the leaders of NATO, they're very, I mean, we could go through and I could quote them saying, those were Russia's demands to have peace and we rejected them. They rejected them. They could have had a peace deal with Russia then just by allowing Ukraine to be neutral. And Jen Stoltenberg, and this was echoed by Jake Sullivan and other U.S. officials, they said, no, 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 Russia cannot tell NATO who can join NATO, and Russia cannot tell Ukraine what alliances it can join or not join. This is some sort of like, you know, God-given right. Nothing can be more important than the right to join NATO. So we said no to them, and I think they they figured Over time, Russia would decide, well, war is coming because NATO expansion isn't stopping. We're going to fire the first shot. We'll move first. I think they also expected a military offensive 
by the Ukrainian military at that time, right towards the end of February 2022. So we'll fire the first shot. We won't be on our back heels. But then the U.S. and NATO could say, see, Russia is the aggressor. And that's exactly what you want to do in terms of public opinion. Have your enemy appear to be the aggressor. The United States, when it invades Vietnam, invades Iraq, invades Afghanistan, looks like and is the aggressor. You know, giant parts of the world stand up against U.S. imperialism. But if you can get your adversary to fire the first shot, then it's kind of perfect, right? So I think the U.S. calculation was get Russia to fire the first shot, then have a long war. Russia can't really win, won't be defeated, but can't really win because the U.S. has really buttressed the Ukrainian military so much. So over time, this will weaken Russia, will in sanction Russia. Russia will be pushed out of the world economy. And then one of the two major powers that we've identified for major power conflict, China and Russia, one of them, Russia in this case, would be weakened. But that didn't really happen, Walter. What happened is that Russia was stronger, more prepared, more formidable, and big parts of the world looked at the Ukraine war as sort of the emergence of a multipolar world, you know, replacing the 30-year-long stretch of U.S. unipolar domination. And many countries in the third world, or so-called third world, what we now call the global south, thought, well, multipolarity is better because at least we have variety, we have options, we have choices. It's not like an anti-imperialist reaction to the U.S., but just the idea that not being dictated to. So now the U.S. is kind of alarmed that 18 months into the war, this battle, which Biden last year framed as a war between democracy and autocracy, a global war between good and evil, Biden dropped all of that stuff at the U.N. speech this time. He didn't mention autocracy versus democracy one time, not once. Instead, he's starting to sound like the champion of other countries and parts of the world, the global south, that in the past, past years, he would have condemned as an autocracy, but now because they're competing in the new circumstance with Russia and China and with BRICS, they're sort of like, no, we want to be your friend. We don't care really what form of government you have. So they're orienting a lot towards India, South Africa, renewed interest in Saudi Arabia, some of the countries that are either in BRICS or wanting to join BRICS. Listen to this clip. I want to play this clip from Biden talking about Vietnam. And I want to remind everybody, the U.S. went to war in Vietnam and three million Vietnamese died before the U.S. was defeated in Vietnam by the National Liberation Movement and expelled from Vietnam. But listen to how Biden frames it here again at the UN. And I think this is indeed the unveiling of a new US strategy. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, my fellow leaders, about a week ago, I stood on the other side of the world in Vietnam on soil once bloody with war for decades. It would have been unthinkable for an American president to stand in Hanoi alongside a Vietnamese leader and announce a mutual commitment to the highest level of country's partnership. But it's a powerful reminder that our history need not dictate our future. With the concerted leadership and careful effort, adversaries can become partners. Overwhelming challenges can be resolved 
and deep wounds can heal. Walter, I have to leave now and go and throw up. I mean, that is so disgusting and gross. It shows that deep wounds can heal. Well, the only way that wound healed is the United States was expelled from Vietnam based on the heroic armed resistance of the Vietnamese people, supported by tens of millions of people in the United States and other Western countries who were in the streets demanding an end to the aggression committed by the United States. I mean, it wasn't just that wounds healed. Vietnam won. Vietnam won. And the only reason the United States today, Walter, is back standing with Vietnam and talking about how they can become friends and partners. You got that language, right? They were going to be partners. That's what Biden said. Well, the United States didn't do that with, hasn't done that with Cuba, didn't do it with, you know, Venezuela. But with Vietnam, suddenly they want to be friends. Well, that's because they don't want Vietnam to be part of this new global south network of countries that are basically becoming completely independent of the United States or trying to become independent of the United States. So now Biden is trying to say to the Vietnamese and to other countries in Asia, you can be our partner, just don't be China's partner. Again, it's part of a geostrategic shift. The battle between, quote, autocracy and democracy, good and bad, we're good, you're all evil, that's given way now, and the U.S. government realizes it's on the back foot. And now this speech at the U.N., I think, represents one indication that the U.S. is shifting its strategy. Same with India, by the way. The U.S. is really courting India. Biden was, like, loving Modi at the G20 meeting. Again, they want to break Vietnam and India away from any sort of relationship or close relationship with China. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's also related to this economic strategy of decoupling with China. It's a restraining factor on the the Pentagon war hawks, the fact that U.S. businesses and Chinese businesses do a lot of trade with each other. And so they think, well, if we can essentially exploit labor in Vietnam the way that we used to be able to, you know, really underpay people in China, then that'll be, you know, that'll make our supply lines more resilient, our supply chains more resilient. And Vietnam can be the center of low-wage manufacturing that China once was, but we can't do that now because China is actually developing, their workers want to be paid more, and we want to have a new Cold War with them. So that trade makes us nervous. It's all a cynical manipulation driven by the interests of U.S. corporations and U.S. war planners and U.S. imperial, quote-unquote, diplomats. The personal hypocrisy, too, I think is completely disgusting. I mean, Biden was actually elected to the Senate in, in 1972. So he was he was in the Senate as the U.S. government was committing genocide in Vietnam. I mean, he was he was a part of that genocidal regime. You know, also during the Iraq war, like Biden talks about sovereignty and territorial integrity and how it's so horrible that Russia is violating Ukraine's territorial integrity. I mean, he was also in the Senate during the Iraq war. And when he was in the Senate during the Iraq war, he proposed the partition of Iraq into a Kurdish, Sunni and Shia states. He said, you know, let's take Iraq, which is one country, and turn it into three countries. So there's absolutely no, you know, moral or principled stand that underlies any of this. It's all about, you know, what is the most that the U.S. empire can get from any other country 
under the given international circumstances. And the fact that the international situation is changing, it's changing in a way that's favorable to you know, the underdeveloped, formerly colonized countries of the world. The U.S. does actually have to give better terms a lot of the times, offer better terms. And that's something, you know, that's to the benefit of most people in the world. I mean, it's not socialism, it's not freedom and liberation for the working class, but it does improve the situation in very meaningful and important ways. All right, I wanna turn to two other clips. One is Biden talking about Libya, which is again, you know, just a disgusting demonstration of doublespeak. Normal, normal though, imperialist doublespeak and then Zelensky echoing sort of some of the same comments. So you see that Zelensky, who's the pitch man for the war, and Biden, who really isn't capable of being the pitch man really for anything, but as the sitting president of the United States does have to mouth the words, the scripts that have been written for him, if he can, you know, and again, the victory for Biden at any given moment is, does he not fall over is he able to get like most of the speech out? Can people kind of sort of hear his words and understand them? So, you know, it's a low bar for success from the point of view of performance. But from the point of view of politics, which I think is not in his delivery, but in the words that other people have written for him, the words of the state, the words of the capitalist imperialist state. Again, it's so disgusting. So I want to play this clip. It's about Libya. Listen to this. Tragic, tragic flooding in Libya. My heart goes out to the people of Libya that's killed thousands, thousands of people. Together, these snapshots tell an urgent story of what awaits us if we fail to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and begin to climate-proof the world. For one day, for one day, my administration, the United States, has treated this crisis as an existential threat from the moment we took office. Yeah, existential threat. Walter, the U.S. bombed Libya starting March 19, 2011. They bombed Libya every day. Biden was then vice president of the United States. Obama was the president. They did it to carry out regime change in Libya, just as they had done in Iraq and what they had hoped to do later in Syria to destroy the governments that owed their existence to the anti-colonial project and governments that had been in one way or another an ally of the former Soviet Union or then later Russia. You know, thousands of Libyans died. The country was made government-less. A civil war broke out. Then the U.S. completely exonerates its own responsibility for what happened to Libya. And BBC News, another imperialist media outlet, said this week, it wasn't just a natural disaster with the flooding in Libya. It was the years of mismanagement and failure to attend to infrastructure. Well, there used to be a very effective government in Libya. It was the government led by Gaddafi. And it was destroyed by the United States, Britain, and France. They bombed it and bombed it. And then when Gaddafi, the 70-year-old head of state, was lynched in the streets. Hillary Clinton, who had been Secretary of State during the Obama administration in the same time period, the first four years, she said that very day, she said, we came, we saw, he died. And she was giddy. She was literally giggling and laughing 
about the execution, the lynching in the streets of a head of state. And now you have these same imperial politicians crying crocodile tears for the people of Libya as if they can thus exonerate or cover up, whitewash their own role in the suffering and death and destruction that is ravaging Libya and Libyan people. It's incredible that he would have the gall to get up there in front of the whole world at the United Nations and and lie like that. I mean, of course, the reason 10,000, 15,000, maybe even 20,000 people died in these horrific flooding in Libya is because there is no central government anymore. There could have been early warnings. There could have been more maintenance done to these dams. There could have been an evacuation plan in place. And the reconstruction effort is also being, and rescue effort is being horrifically hampered for the same reason that NATO destroyed Libya's government and in its place was chaos, was no, not even, you know, like a stable proxy puppet government, puppet regime, but actually just chaos where different militias would rule different sections of the country. They would form shifting alliances with each other. I mean, there are two separate, you know, fully fledged, you know, quote unquote governments with cabinets, with competing legislatures based in different cities in the country. Slavery, like slavery as an organized industry reemerged in Libya all because they made that decision in 2011 to annihilate the central government and to shred Libyan society by pledging it into chaos and ensuring that that chaos continued. That's had cascading consequences all across the region. So much of the fighting and suffering in the Sahel throughout North Africa is in one way or, or another the result of the war in Libya and its fallout. And the, everybody who is involved in that is a criminal, is a war criminal, has committed crimes against peace. And that's how history is going to remember them. The last thing that I want to say is that it's just so disgusting that Biden essentially tried to posture as like, oh, I, this is about climate change. Like, this is about climate change, and I have a responsible, mature, grown-up position on climate change. I think the world should take action to address it. Well, climate change is something that multiplies the problems and injustices and dangers of a world that already has lots of injustices and dangers. This imperialist-dominated world order where some countries are kept in poverty and underdevelopment so that the bankers and corporations and the Western countries can grow rich, that interacting with climate change that's what really causes the suffering. That's what creates an existential risk for humanity. And, and Biden is intentionally hiding behind that. All right. I want to play one final clip. It's Zelensky again at the U.N. General Assembly demonstrating that he is the loyal servant of the United States propaganda machine and his presentation about world politics Again, not a friend of the truth, but certainly a friend of the Washington propaganda machine. Again, this is Zelensky assigning blame for what happened to Syria, which was indeed ripped apart by the United States and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and its right wing, very, very right wing allies, including Al Qaeda in Syria. But no, according to Zelensky, the propagandists for Washington, it's just the opposite. Let's listen to this final clip. Russia turned Syria into ruins. And if not Russia, the chemical weapons would have never been used there in Syria. Russia has almost swallowed Belarus. It is obviously threatening Kazakhstan and other Baltic states. And the goal of the 
present war against Ukraine is to turn our land, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you. Okay, that's just a complete upside down version. The United States bombed and destroyed the Libyan government and immediately because they were so successful having killed the president, the head of state of a sovereign government, the country that had the largest oil reserves in Africa, they immediately moved on to Syria. And that's when the United States, working with Turkey, the CIA, one of its biggest operations, funneled tens of millions of dollars of weapons into Al-Qaeda and other right-wing forces who were trying to overthrow the government of Assad. And the Russians finally intervened in, I think, either late 2014 or 15, and said that they were going to stand with the Syrian government, unlike Libya, where they abstained, the Russians abstained in their vote at the UN, thus allowing the UN to use the Security Council mandate to, quote, protect civilian lives as the sort of cover, the camouflage for what amounted to a NATO aggression against an African country, Libya. The Russians at that point came in and said, no, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to stand with Syria, our, one of our important allies. And Zelensky has now said, well, Syria was destroyed based on Russia's intervention. No, it was a proxy war waged by the United States, Saudi Arabia and Turkey in the beginning against the Assad government. And, you know, we know from Wesley Clark, who was U.S. commander in NATO during the Yugoslav War, in his speeches after September 11th, he said the United States, the Bush administration had decided right after September 11th that they were going to take out seven countries, I believe he said. It was Iraq, of course, Iran, Syria, Libya. They were going to change the balance of forces in Lebanon Somalia, they were going to, this whole resource-rich part of the world, North Africa, the Middle East, or more correctly, West Asia, but what we in the United States call the Middle East, they were going to destroy the independent governments, not the monarchies, not the royal families, but the independent governments that owed their existence to the anti-colonial uprisings after World War II. They were going to destroy those governments. And here you have Zelensky basically functioning as a front man for American propaganda. You know, Walter, I mean, as we're moving to the finish line, I want to get your thoughts. You know, we've been saying here on the show for a long time, the logic of the conflict in Ukraine is towards escalation, that the U.S. government is playing nuclear chicken, that the U.S. believes that over time Russia will weaken. They're also clearly testing whether China will remain an ally of Russia. I'm sure you saw that Jake Sullivan met for 12 hours in Malta with the Chinese foreign minister at the same time in the last few days. Uh, 12 hours is a long meeting, and it was said to be candid and constructive, you know, using the obvious diplomatic language. But the U.S. is playing this dual game. They're attacking Russia and China, but at the same time, they're hoping to separate them as they did during in the 1970s and 1980s, where they could convince one or the other to break the alliance. China won't do that, hasn't done that so far. Xi Jinping's government, I think, fully knows that if the U.S. succeeds at isolating and weakening Russia, 
It's not going to save China. It will just advance the timetable for the aggression against China. So, so far that hasn't happened, but you can see what the U.S. is trying to do, the unveiling of this new strategy, which is try to win over Vietnam, win over India, start to win over South Africa. There's overtures in that direction. Some of the other BRICS countries, and at the same time, sort of minimize at some level, some of the tensions between the United States and China, perhaps to sort of throw China off. It's kind of like the ultimate bullying strategy. Like if you meet a bully on a playground and they come and they start bashing you over and over again, and they look like they might bash the next person, then they turn to the next person and say, well, you're not his friend, right? You know, in other words, hoping that people in the face of this bullying aggressive tactic will try to kind of find their own individual salvation away from the other victims of the bully. You can see that's in sort of plain language what the U.S. is actually trying to do. Yeah, that's right. And they're, they're having a much harder time accomplishing that, succeeding with that strategy now because of the changed balance of forces in the world, that there is you know another economic partner, another source of investment, of infrastructure investment, especially essentially that China now exists as a significant force and potentially pull in international politics and is cohering this broader alliance, even if it's loose or imperfect or uneven, of other formerly colonized countries that want to fundamentally reshape that balance of power. Uh, it's a crucially important development for the world, for the peoples of the world, but it does not make the world necessarily more peaceful. In fact, the United States could escalate to greater and greater lengths. They could seek out new wars and conflicts to provoke, to try to do what you're saying, to break apart Russia and China, to break Russia and China off from the other global South countries that share a lot of common foreign policy goals. And the last thing, I just want to respond to uh, the comparison you were making between Syria and the conflict right now, how Zelensky was referring to Syria at the United Nations. You know, intervention in Syria, too, was sold to the public as something that was humanitarian that essentially if the United States didn't step in and prevent the government from massacring people, from killing them, choking them, poisoning them with gas, with banned biological and chemical weapons, then it would just be a slaughter. And so the United States has to step in. That obviously was not the case in Syria. If the United States succeeded, then that meant that there would either be chaos like in Libya, or there would be a government and it would be run by essentially al-Qaeda. And the same thing is true in Ukraine. I mean, we have to learn these lessons because the lies are always the same. The lies are, you know, we're doing this for a noble reason. We're doing this for democracy or to save civilians or because, you know, the principles of an equitable international order call for it. But the one most important thing for people to keep in mind when they assess the actions and decisions of the U.S. government, especially around the world, is that they don't do anything out of selflessness. They don't do anything because they're magnanimous or because they believe in humanitarian principles. They're only doing it for their own power and for the profits of the Wall Street bankers and corporations. All right, we're going to leave it there. Walter, we need a new system. We say that all the time on the socialist program. It won't happen by itself. People have to organize, mobilize, fight for it. We can do it, of course. But the current system is taking the society, all societies, the whole world towards a greater and greater crisis. Climate catastrophe, endless war, those two together pose a real menace. And right now, the Ukraine war is the tip of the spear. Sadly, the American people have been told by the capitalist-owned mainstream media 
that the only reason the war is happening is because Russia wants to gobble up Ukraine and all of Europe, when in fact the U.S. and NATO expansion was the the catalyst, the detonator for the entire conflict. That's still somewhat hidden, but all the more reason why we have to expose it. And as the war escalates, I think more and more people in the United States will in fact feel compelled to turn against it. Walter Smolarik has been our guest. He's the editor of Liberation News. Go to liberationnews.org. Walter, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.